All right, Acts chapter 4, 23 through 37 is where we find ourselves. Uh, last week, if you were with us, uh, we saw how the church had started to kind of face some heat, uh, both from the uh, religious uh, and political leaders of the day didn't like what they were saying or what they were doing. Um, it was really their exclusive message of Jesus and their allegiance to Jesus that really started a wildfire kind of through that community uh, in, in Jerusalem. And it was the gospel that enabled them to not only be bold in the face of persecution, but also humble, all right? Also humble, self-deflecting, pointing to Jesus and not to themselves. They weren't starting a movement, starting churches for themselves. They were doing it for the name of Jesus and for his glory. And so as the, the powers of the day had to let them go from the prison because they really had nothing to, uh, to pin on them. No one had seen someone talk and act like they did since Jesus. And so now we're finding they even said that. Remember, they said that they noticed that they had been with Jesus. And so we see the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit all over the lives of these early followers of Jesus. Now, so Peter and John, now that they've been, uh, as well as the man that they healed, most likely, have been set free from prison, uh, what are they going to do? That's, that's what our text answers. Well, what are they going to do? It's like they, it's like they passed the first test, but more are going to be coming. If you've read ahead, if you've looked ahead, you're going to see there's more difficulty that's going to be coming. I think of, uh, it's kind of like Indiana Jones. See, I'm trying to get my context here. All right, Indiana Jones. Um, can't get more Indiana than that, right? Um, it's like Indiana Jones when he enters the, uh, the canyon of the crescent moon. Remember, he passes his first test, the fast-moving saw blades, right? Only the penitent shall pass. Do you remember this? All right, he passed that test, but only, there was more tests to come, right? There was the word puzzle. There was like the, the invisible bridge. I mean, there was more tests that were gonna be coming. It's exactly what we find our, uh, our followers of Jesus here in this text. They've passed one test, but more are gonna come and they're just gonna get tougher. Now, there could be three responses that could happen uh, as a result. They've been set free now, what are they gonna do? Well, one, they could be satisfied. They could be satisfied that they stood boldly against opposition, which they did, pat themselves on the back, um, you know, and, and be thankful for what they did and, uh, and take it easy. Or, Second option they could do is run, uh, run and hide, okay? You're like, okay, we, we barely escaped that one. We may not escape the next one. Let's just go hide out and let's just kind of stay away um, and out of the public's view. Or they could continue to take risks. They could take on the challenges ahead of them with that humble boldness. They could experience some failures as well as some successes and do some amazing things and see God work in and through them, right? Those are the options we all face when there's a challenge in front of us as followers of Jesus, right? We can... We can, uh, we can just be thankful we survived one and try to stay away from others. We can, um, we can run and hide, uh, or we can push through. We can be satisfied that we've made it as far as we have and hit cruise control. We can pat our life uh, with comforts to try to insulate ourselves against hardship, praying we, you know, God doesn't ever have us step out again. Or we can keep pressing on. We can keep moving ahead, knowing that there's nothing more exciting than knowing Jesus and making him known, and know that there's risks involved in that. But whether you like it or not, whether you think you signed up for it or not, you need to understand something, that God is going to bring difficulty and trouble into your life. And it's not because, as a follower of Jesus, he has some grudge against you uh, in that way, as if he's got some vendetta there. It's not that case at all, actually. Rather, it's, he loves you. And we're going to see this more when we look at this next week. God is pulling away the things that we lean on the most. A lot of times, difficulty, trial, suffering has a way of revealing the things that we trust in, right, more than Jesus. And so he does that. Um, but God always brings, brings trouble. Matter of fact, Job, 
who knew a thing or two, not Job, as I used to think one time, Job, uh, Job 5-7, uh, explaining trouble, he knew about it. He said, uh, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly outward, upward. Right? Have you ever been in a campfire? Um, I'll do one outside my backyard maybe, but not anywhere else. But if you've been to a campfire, you'll see the sparks kind of fly up. That's the idea. As the sparks fly up, so is trouble destined to come. Jesus would put it this way, John 16, 33. In the world, you will have tribulation. Not might, not probably. It's a certainty. Okay, We're going to have it. Uh, and then Peter, who we see in our text here, also wrote a letter, two letters actually, First and Second Peter. Later on in your Bible, you'll find those books. 1 Peter 4, 12, he said this, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So Peter's like, don't think it's weird. Don't think it's bizarre that trouble and trials and suffering are coming because this is normal. This is par for the course of what it's like in following Jesus. This is what it's like living in a fallen world. So as we pick up Acts this week, what will the followers of Jesus do in the face of trouble? What will they do as their faith is challenged? Will they run and hide? Or will they crumble under the weight of it all? Or will they stand firm and be all the better for it and more profitable for the mission that Jesus set them on? But if they do keep moving ahead, if they do keep moving ahead, ahead with the mission that God's given to them, as he saw back in Acts 1.8, despite the obstacles, despite the pain, despite the persecution or sorrow, what is it that's going to hold their feet to the fire? Right? What is it that's going to keep them moving ahead? What is, where's the motivation going to come from? What's going to keep them from quitting? And that's what we're going to see in our text today. We're going to see in order to, to keep taking those risks, to stay on mission when it's difficult, is going to require some things of us. And this is what we'll look at. There'll be four here. It's going to involve running. They do all start with R, by the way. Uh, running, recounting, requesting, and releasing. All right, number one. Running, verse 23. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, Luke tells us that they were released after facing, really, we would say, some serious uh, injustice, having been wrongly imprisoned, right? They, they were released because they were wrongly imprisoned. So they were facing that. And notice the first thing that they do. They don't run into hiding, kind of barricading themselves. Uh, they don't run to stock up on ammo and take it out on the, on the people in front of them. They don't, they don't go out and protest the streets, right? They don't even stock up on canned goods and pitch a tent and pray for Jesus to come back now and get me out of here, right? They don't do that either. Instead, we find here that they run to their spiritual family. They run to the family of God. They run to the fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are following Jesus together. That's immediately where they go when there's conflict. Why? They knew, Peter and John here, they knew that they would receive them. They knew that they would welcome them whether they succeeded or failed on the mission. That they, that they were on. Think about this. If Peter and John had folded under the pressure, which could happen, um, to not talk about Jesus when they told him not to, they still would have been welcomed, right? It was the default place to run. It was a proper haven to recharge, to plan, to pray, and be equipped to get moving again, okay? That's where they went. They ran to the church. They ran to the people of God. So where do you run when you succeed? Where do you run when you fail? Where do, you, uh, where do you go when you feel like you're following Jesus closely? And where do you feel like you're falling away? The answer should be the church. And this is important. And we've talked about this, right? The church is not, a, as has been said, a museum for saints. It's a hospital 
for sinners. We don't gather here on a, on a Sunday morning to kind of pat ourselves on the back and talk about our greatness, right? We come here to look at Jesus, to honor Jesus, to glorify Jesus, to see what he's done for us, to be empowered to move out in light of the grace we have received and to confess our need of more grace. A perfect example of this in the Bible as actually an illustration of this is in the book of Ruth. It's in the Old Testament, the first half of, of your, your Bible there, with a gal named Naomi. Naomi, sorry. Now, Naomi was in a difficult situation. Naomi's husband had died, left her. She had her two sons, older sons, and then both of her older sons died as well. She felt, uh, she started to feel the Lord had, was against her. She started growing bitter. Matter of fact, in the text, she renames herself Mara, uh, which I think in the Hebrew is translated something like Karen. Like, it was, they were really, really difficult, okay? Some of you may get that, some of you not. Um, it doesn't say that, by the way. Uh, Ruth, um, but she does. She actually renames herself. The word means bitter. She's just a bitter lady. She's just really mad, really angry, and really bitter. And so Ruth, one of her daughter-in-laws, decides to stick with her through all of this. And Naomi, even when Ruth says, how stick with you, Naomi even tells her, like, go away. Look at this. Ruth, this is like bad evangelistic techniques, right? <laughs> Ruth 1.13, know my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi, so she decides to return to Israel. And when she arrived in Bethlehem in that story, she, she arrived, she's not, you know, not a happy camper, which is what I think all camping is, but she's not, she's not a happy camper. She shows up, she gets to the people there, and here's what she does. Ruth 1, uh, the book of Ruth 1, 20 and 21. She said to them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So you get the idea. She's, she's not in a good place, right? She's struggling. But what did she do? The important part of what she did was that when she, when, even though she was struggling, not just with the trials, but even struggling with God himself, right? Clearly from the language. She was, she was having a hard time, not just with the situation, but the, were wrestling with God through the situation. You ever been there before, right? It's not just the trial you're wrestling with. It's with God himself you're wrestling with in that trial. And she's facing both of these elements, and yet she returned to God's people. She returned to the people of God, and they received her. And as the story goes, in the end, God ends up blessing her in that situation, uses that in the life of her and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who Ruth later becomes uh, the great, you know, great-great-grandmother of David and great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus eventually, right? Um, and listen, I know um, as you think about this reality, some of you may think, even as Christians, that the church is a place you go to and you keep your cards close, Right? You don't show your cards. You don't put them on the table. You keep it. You put the face on. You do the act. You do the play. Like, I show up at church. I got to act like I've got it all together. But that is so contrary to what the church is supposed to be, okay? It's not meant to be that way. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you have seen that. I understand that. But I'm just telling you that biblical Christianity, the, the way the church is supposed to form, is not to be a place where you have to hide who you are in terms of hiding your struggles, hiding your difficulties, um, you know, hiding your cards, as it were. But you're sitting in a room, understand this, and this is, is important for you to know, you're sitting in a room of prodigals. You're sitting in a room, you look around the room, you're sitting around a room looking at different people at one time or another who ran as far as they could from Jesus, who were apart from Jesus, who wanted nothing to do with Jesus, right? They're all in this room, okay? <laughs> that, that is your story, it's all of our stories. So if you're struggling, that, that's, don't think you've strayed too far, 
Don't feel that you have to wear a mask. The church is to be a place where you can run to for help. That is to be the reality of the church. And Parkside, we need to continue to grow to be that kind of community. And the reason Peter and John could return to their friends was because they were a grace-centered, gospel-centered community. They knew they had been saved through sheer grace and nothing of themselves, along with everyone else in that church. They knew they had sin to deal with. They knew they had doubts to fight. They knew they all had, the, had fears they all were facing, right? They were all in the same boat. Just think about in this text, if we go back a few, a few months in the storyline, we go back a few months, these same people saw a rise in persecution with Jesus, right? He was arrested in the garden. Remember the garden of Gethsemane? Jesus is praying there um, for the cup to pass and all of that, and the, the guards come and arrest him. And what happens to these very, very people we're talking about in the story? Do they run together? Do they jump together? Do they draw in, draw in close together? No, they don't. They run all their own direction away from Jesus and away from each other. Uh, they, keep, they keep running. They don't pull together, but they pull apart. So why didn't they do that now in the book of Acts? Because it's the same situation. We even read here in the text, we'll see later, it's this very similar situation. What happened to Jesus is happening to them, as, Jesus, as God promised and wrote out, even Psalm 2. So what was different now? Well, the gospel of grace has settled into their souls, and the Holy Spirit, as we see, has come. They knew they were all in the same playing field. They knew they were all accepted and loved by Jesus, not because of their own performance, be it good or bad, but based on Jesus' perfect performance for them. You see, the, the gospel radically shapes and reshapes the, the culture of a church. When you get the gospel, it transforms how you see each other. It transforms how you see new people, right? It transforms everything. It allows you, the gospel allows you, because we're all standing in grace, not on works. If we, were, if we, were in a, if we understood that we were saved in, in relationship with God based on works, then we have every right in the world to figure out who we're better than and who we're less than, right? I, I'm more moral, more better than you are based on whatever my list is, right? But that's not how we stand in, in, in God. That's not how we're accepted by God. We're accepted by sheer grace, not of our own works. And because of that, that allows you to be vulnerable, it allows you to be honest, right? It allows you to be transparent with your life. If this group didn't believe the gospel like that as a community, if they were understanding the gospel as being something they were, they were saved by their work, saved by their things that they can do for God, they wouldn't have shared this burden with each other. So the application, right, is be honest. Come clean about your doubts, your fears, your failures, your sins. Stop toting around this baggage with you, acting like you're not toting it, okay? All right, be honest with that. That's why we're supposed to bear one another's what? Burdens, right? I mean, that's the whole point of the church is to be together in a way that we are actually honest and transparent with where we are with the Lord and what we're struggling with. Believe the gospel enough to do that. That's the kind of culture the gospel should create. Number two, recounting. Now, they get together, they run to the church, and they begin to hear, they begin to recount the scriptures. Look at this, is really good stuff here. Verse 24, when they heard it, they heard the news, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So notice how the people of God respond. They don't hear the news from Peter and John and start lecturing maybe Peter and John on maybe what they should have said, maybe what they could have said better, a little positive, you know, constructive criticism here. Uh, you know, it would have been better if you said this or better if you said that. Maybe not say this next time, right? They didn't get into that kind of argument. They don't go into planning and strategizing mode for next steps. 
They don't call for advice, you know, and figure out. They probably didn't call very much back then, but whatever. If they, they had a phone, they would have called, right, for advice from other people on how to do it. They didn't even start writing their legislature, right, telling them how the injustices they have faced and the difficulties they were walking through. They didn't do any of that. Instead, we, they start recounting Scripture together in prayer. They start thinking about what God has said and what Jesus has promised. And it wasn't solitary prayer, it was communal prayer. And by and large, I told you this before, you read the book of Acts, by and large you see people in the book of Acts are not people praying alone, they're almost always praying together, right? Um, They ran to their church community and were received and drawn together in prayer together. Why? Because they knew that it all depended on Jesus. They knew they had, they had long ago in their lives released control of their lives and given it to Jesus, so they were instinctively turned straight to him. This is what happens. When the illusion of control disappears, okay, because it is an illusion, by the way, <laughs> when the illusion of control, that you've got it all, all under control for your life, when that illusion disappears, you know what happens? You become men and women of prayer. And you join together with other people who've realized, that's eh, just an illusion. I really don't control anything. Notice the topic of their prayer, too. I love this. What's their topic of prayer? It's Jesus. Should be shocking to us. <laughs> That's the topic. Everything was about him. It was the first, literally the first words out of their mouth. They weren't, and they weren't asking for anything yet. Did you notice this? They weren't asking for, they were simply reassuring their hearts of truth about Jesus. They were grounding themselves in good theology and good doctrine through prayer and rehearsing scripture. Man, it's cool. They're, they're recounting scripture to each other. They're recounting the story of the gospel in prayer. And it starts, the first thing they do is acknowledge who God is. He is a sovereign creator. It's the first place they go in their minds, even as they pray outwardly. It starts with a sovereign creator. In other words, he is in absolute control of everything. He spoke the world into existence. He breathed life into mankind. Like like John, uh, John, the gospel of John chapter one said about Jesus, right? He, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, right? It's Jesus, it's who he is. He is creator God. Then they affirm his absolute sovereignty in the face of turmoil and trouble. And that's, that's gotta be like one of the first doctrines you run to when you're facing this thing. They affirm the idea that God is not pacing the divine floor in heaven, worried about what is taking place down here. Oh, no. What are we going to do about this thing now? Really, Jimmy? Oh, come on. You know, now I got to fix that, right? I mean, he, he's not, a, I don't know, what, if your name's Jimmy, sorry, I just threw that out there. He's like, how did he know? Um, just came to my mind, Holy Spirit led, I don't know. Um, but um, maybe. But, you know, but that's what they're affirming. They're like, look, God's not up there pacing the divine floor. What is he doing? He's sitting on his throne, means he is in absolute and complete control of the situation. And they're rehearsing, telling each other the story through prayer. It's because the story of God's sovereignty means that he not only has written history, but he has written the future. And he has written each of our stories down, down to the very last breath. Everything is written down in the story. Everything. So nothing is a surprise to Jesus. As sad and traumatic as events may be, we think about this week facing the FedEx situation that took place, horrific, right? We should pray for them. We should, I mean, that, that is as absolutely horrific. I'm not excusing that in any form or fashion, but I can tell you still that God is still sovereign and God is still on his throne. And this is what they're facing here at the church. They, they go back to, okay, God, I don't, we don't understand. We don't have all the answers, but we know you're in control. So we're gonna trust you on this one. Listen, Psalm 103, 19, here's some of the things they may have been 
quoted to themselves here in prayer. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Not some, not most, all. Isaiah 45, 7, I form light, create darkness. I make well-being, I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Lamentation 3, 37, 38, who has spoken and it came to pass and the Lord has commanded it. It is not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come. Amos 3, 6, is the trumpet blown in the city and the people not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? These are some really difficult verses, right? It's <laughs> so hard to, to wrestle with and wrestle with it we must. Struggle with it, we must. Ask questions, we must. But at the end of the day, we gotta sit down at the fence and not cross over and be like, I don't understand, but I know, God, you're still in control, so something's going on here, right? You're doing something. And that's what they, that's what they do. Listen, and any fear that was creeping around in, the, in that little room of prayer got squashed, not by self-esteem or positive thinking, but by deep theological truths about Jesus. We could say, in a way, they actually kind of healed themselves of fear by meditating on the attributes of God, God most antithetical to their fears, that Jesus is in absolute control. This means in our life, we're not to just ask God to take away our worry, but we should meditate and, as it were, maybe pray in his wisdom. We should not just ask God for more confidence. We should meditate and pray in his love and grace. We should not just ask God for more self-control. We should meditate and pray in his holiness, right? I mean, we're, we're taking in through prayer who God is and how that attribute actually affects how we are viewing our situation or our difficulty. I mean, in, many, in many ways, we find healing by praying Jesus' very promises and truths and attributes back to ourselves, to each other. That's what they're doing. That's why Paul would say in Ephesians, we are to speak truth to one another, Right? Well, it goes on, verse 25, they, they continue to quote here, and they go to a psalm, they go to Psalm 2 here, here. It says, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, this is all by, by the way, this is part of a prayer, said to the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Kings of the earth set themselves, rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they continue to recount to themselves in prayer the story of God, the story of the gospel. They started by affirming the sovereign creativity of God as a sovereign creator, and now they move to God as really a sovereign storyteller. He not only created the world, but he wrote a story about himself for us to read called the Bible. He did this thousands of years through many different authors. And in their prayer, they highlight one story back in Psalm 2 where the Holy Spirit spoke through, at that time, the anointed would have been King David, okay, at that time. This was affirming what they're saying. They were affirming, uh, this was affirming to them not only that Jesus had everything in control, but he had a plan, Right, a story he was working out that included the grand scheme of redemption and the story and history of mankind. And they realized they fit into the story. So they go back to Psalm 2, where the Israelites there were reminded of everything um, that was dependent upon God and God using his anointed and King David in that sense and realized that, hey, if God's made a promise to King David, he's gonna fulfill it, even if the nations rage, which they did, right? And even though nations come to attack, even they did, they realized that God still had them. They realized they fit into that story. And so they, 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 this is why they ask in the form of a question, you know, why do the nations rage? In other words, why do they think they're gonna win or succeed? This is God's unstoppable plan of redemption. They're not gonna stop it. But as we read Psalm 2, I want you to know something very important that they did. As they're praying Psalm 2 out loud, we realize, just like the rest of Scripture, that the story of Psalm 2 is really not about David, is it? It's actually about 
Jesus. <laughs> and so look at, the, look at the application they make. They transition here, verse 27. For truly, in this city, speaking of Psalm 2, but speaking of this current situation where they're at, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. The nations raged, whom you anointed, he says here. It says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they just smooth, I mean, just how Jesus centered their idea of the Bible was. They just smoothly transitioned, praying Psalm 2, stopping mid-Psalm, and transitioning immediately to Jesus. They affirm in their prayer that 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 was all part part of the story. They saw this very thing happen to Jesus, and then they bring it all the way to their current situation and say, hey, the same thing that happened in Psalm 2 happened, was actually talking about Jesus, which happened, you know, some months ago, which is actually happening right now in the same place. So they, tra- they made that transition all the way to themselves. They realized that this is all part of God's story. He's got it all written out. And notice again in that, that verse 28 there that the nations were raging was all part of the story. This is all part of a plan conceived before the world even began. Even, even it says Jesus was even on the scene. It was all part of that. All the raging, all the difficulty, all that was wrapped up still in God's story. He was still writing, he was still working, he was still in control. That's why you get verses like this, like Psalm 7610, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. You say, what does that mean? What that means is that basically God's gonna take the raging of the nations and like he did with like Joseph, which he meant for evil, God meant it for good. He's gonna turn that. He's gonna use that uh, in that way. I mean, how much comfort do we get knowing that God is a sovereign storyteller who has a story written that includes, uh, that, that includes us and includes our life under control? This, this realization shows them that they have nothing to worry about, whether they be killed or protected. I would remind you that most of these guys, especially these apostles here in the early part of the book of Acts, most of them died gruesome deaths. They were, they were martyred, okay? They, they didn't just die in their sleep. I mean, they were killed for the sake of loving Jesus and talking about Jesus. But they were still trusted God with all of that, right? Either way, God was gonna love and use them, and they are gonna triumph in, in him, even if that means through death. Because if Jesus' death is recorded as part of the story, and God is sovereign over that, then surely he's sovereign over the chaos that is around us. And so we see this boldness begin to grow as they pray, right? It begins to grow. And so in order to keep pressing ahead when it gets rough and not quit, stay on mission, they run to their church community, they recount the attributes of God together, and then thirdly, now they get to some requesting, right? Now they get to requesting. Verse 29, first thing they ask, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So now they turn to ask requests of the Lord after affirming the truth and praising him for his work. And they ask for Jesus to look at their situation, look at their plight, but notice what they don't ask for. They don't ask for relief. Now, that would have been wrong. You know, you could find, you could find different prayers in the Psalms where David asked for relief from situations. But they don't ask for relief from their situation. They don't even ask for protection or safety for them. They don't, ask for, they don't even ask for judgment and start praying the imprecatory Psalms, right? Like, God, break their teeth, please. Like, <laughs> They're mean people. Um, they don't do that either. They instead just ask for what? Can you just open some doors for us? Can you help us through all of this craziness and persecution and turmoil and trouble? Can you open up some doors for us to talk about you? You know what? I think God answered that prayer. <laughs> and you know what? He actually does in the text. This is what they pray. They, and they ask for boldness and faith. Why, why do they pray this way? Because, my friends, Jesus was more important than their personal comfort. Because lost and hurting people were more important than their personal safety. 
because the gospel story was a better story than the one the world was trying to sell to them, right? That's why they prayed this way. That's why it was so radical and so awesome. Look at verse 30. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders perform through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they ask, not only, God, did you open up doors for us to speak, but can you, can you continue to work through us to heal? Can you work through us to, to serve our community? Well, what are they saying? They're basically saying, Jesus, can we just be like you who came not to be served but to serve, right? Just continue to use us that way. They know. I mean, the gospel we've talked about is four acts to the play of the Bible, right? There's creation, fall, redemption, and there's restoration. There's another part of it. And they're like, God, help us to work in that. Help us to show the, what, what, in, in small ways now what you're going to do in the future, right? That's all part of the gospel story. And so they're asking for all of this to be done together, right? God, help us do this together. It's a community project here. Mission is a community project, not a personal project. This is, a, this is the opportunity. This is what they're doing there. You need to identify those who you have befriended, befriended who don't know Jesus, those Jesus put around you, right? You pray for them. Have others in the church do the same. As Pastor Scott was just praying that very thing. God, open up doors for us. Open up opportunities for us. Pastor Steve mentioned last Sunday, he said our Sunday school class was just praying together about people that we know that, that, that around us that we need to know Jesus. I was, just shared, I was just in membership class this morning sharing my story. I was on the prayer list <laughs> in the youth group night, and I showed up, and it was like everyone knew me, though I'd never met them because I was on the prayer list, and they attacked me when I came in, right? It was like, Chris is here, um, you know, and I was lost as could be. And so, but I was on the list. They've been praying together. How cool would that be if that was one of our main objectives as the Sunday school classes? Is that every Sunday we got together and be like, all right, let's pray for those people around us. So who do you got? Who's, who's around you? Right? The, the, imagine the amount of accountability comes with that, right? You're like, all right, I got to get to know some people because they're going to ask me next Sunday. <laughs> right? And I'm going to put some names down. We're going to be praying together. Then we're going to follow up. Like, how did that go? And has God opened doors? No? Okay, let's pray again. Right? That'd be awesome if that was like the rhythm of a Sunday school class. Is like that's one of the main things we're going to try to achieve as a class. That's what these guys are doing. They're praying together, they're facing difficulty, but they're asking together for God to open doors for them. Look at verse 31. Here's what happened. As they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So here they're, they're filled with joy, they're recounting the scriptures, and the Holy Spirit again fills them with power to, to do what he had called them to do. Remember in Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And we talked about that already, but that filling of the Spirit comes for specific opportunities. It's not an ongoing thing. It's for specific needs and things that God has for us. And Ephesians 5, along with Colossians 3, seem to indicate that the more we, we focus um, on the Scriptures, the more we see the Gospel and go through that, the more done through prayer, the more the Spirit of God uses that to open up doors to fill us for opportunities. And again, notice also, they, they weren't asking to be filled. That wasn't like, God, please fill us. You know, please get us. They, it just happened <laughs> as they turned to Jesus in prayer and dependence and rehearsed the gospel story together. That's what happened. Humble boldness is the mark of being filled by the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one, by the way, it's the, we'll tell us later in, God, in uh, 1 John, that casts out fear. How does he do that? By assuring our hearts that we are children of God, Right? Again, showing us the gospel, highlighting the work of Jesus, what the Holy Spirit does, affirming to us the realities about God. Romans 8, 15 says this, you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons for whom we cry, Abba, Father. Really, Abba means daddy. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And that's what the Spirit of God is doing, right? As the people of God get together and pray, as they get together and ask God to open doors, the Holy Spirit is using that to affirm the reality of the family, the reality of the sonship, daughtership, that we're sons and daughters of God, to reaffirm those things. So, to persevere through trial, difficulty, tribulation, persecution, we run to the community, recount the attributes and promises of God together as a community, we plead with Jesus to make us bold, on mission as a community, and lastly, releasing, releasing. If, we, if we're gonna move forward together, then we have to release our, I'm gonna put it this way, release our death grip on our idols. We all got a death grip on some things. Most likely today, right now, there's a death grip you have on certain things, it's not Jesus, right? Because that's all an idol is, right? An idol is just simply, it's a good thing we make into an ultimate thing. And we'll talk about this a lot next week, actually, in, in Acts 5. It's a good thing. That God's given me a gift, a person, a, a, a skill, right, a, 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 a piece of property, whatever it may be, that is good that we make ultimate. I mean, I gotta have this. This is my primary. And so these guys were able to move forward because their treasure was Jesus and the gospel. Their treasure, I meaning what took place, the center of their soul was not comfort. It was not ease. It was not security. It was not a false sense of control. And here, in this case, it wasn't even money or property. They knew they couldn't hold on and treasure things, their idols, and live to know Jesus and make him known. And so Jesus had told them that, right? They, they heard this. For this very specific idol here, we find Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either hate the one, love the other. Be devoted to one, despise the other. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve both. So if there's anything that you value more than Jesus, when the going gets tough, when, it, when the heat gets turned up, you're gonna go with what you value most. That's what heat does. That's what trials do. It kind of starts uh, bubbling to the surface, you know, the, um, the issues that need to be dealt with. Many times you may not know what you really value or really treasure until the heat gets turned up and maybe those things get taken away, right? When those things get taken away, you're going like, wait a minute, I, 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 I needed that, right? Um, and when that heat gets turned up, you can either repent and turn to Jesus or you can follow your idols, because why? Because you, you must have a God. You must have something at the center of your soul. Ecclesiastes 3.11 talks about that. The Lord put eternity in our soul, right? There's a sense of, there's a vacant hole there that we, we try to fill with anything and anyone in the world. And it will either be found in Jesus or you will continue to search for it in the world and not find it. And to borrow a phrase from you too, Jared, you'll appreciate this, right? And you'll find you still haven't found what you're looking for, right? So what you're looking for. So look what happens. Verse 32. The full number of those who believed were one heart and soul. Beautiful picture. No one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a strong statement, right? And he talks about here people selling their property, right? And giving it, giving it away in that way. And understand, not, not everybody, as, a, as the story of, of the book of Acts rolls on, New Testament rolls on, not everyone it was a requirement, if you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to sell your house. Okay? That's not what necessarily is being going. It's not, don't misapply this. It's not what's being said. We'll find out in chapter 5, later on, verse 42, they're still meeting in houses owned by other Christians, so there's still property ownership. This is not a verse saying you shouldn't own anything. It's not, it's not what's going on. But what you do need to notice and what you do need to apply is that they were radically what? They were releasing ownership of their stuff. Okay? Um, they, the things that they thought maybe one time they, could, they couldn't live without. 
the gospel had transformed them from possessive persons to stewards of stuff. It's a, a, a radical change, isn't it? From possessive persons, this is my stuff, to stewards of stuff. It's just stuff God's given me that I can, you know, I used to enjoy, great, but I need to use it to benefit others, right? Total transformation has taken place in their world, in their minds. And if that meant for them, if that meant selling their house to benefit the lives of someone else, then so be it. I'll do it. That's what they, some of them did. I mean, think about how radical this is and how, how counterintuitive, humanly speaking, this is. Doesn't, doesn't seem a little strange to you in light of the rise of persecution, okay? And think about all the uncertainty. They haven't read the rest of the story, okay? You may have read the rest of Acts. They haven't read all the crazy hardship that's gonna come. They haven't read places like Hebrews 10 where it says some of them will lose their house, not sell it, lose it. It will get taken from them and thrown in prison. They haven't read yet the history that the fact that most of them are gonna die brutal deaths for Jesus. They haven't read that yet, okay? So just think about not having known that part. All that unknown, I mean, when it, when, you, when it starts hurting and you get under pressure and you're not doing well, your tendency isn't to give, right? But what? Take. I'm gonna, I, gotta, I gotta stay safe. I gotta hold on to my stuff, right? Because I might lose it. I don't know when they will. <laughs> and that's, what, that's what radical the gospel is. When the going gets tough, those who embrace the gospel give even more than they take during that, during that season. Why? Because when the, and we go back to the gospel, right? When the, when, the, when the going got tough for Jesus, he didn't fold. He didn't demand or take. Instead, he what? He gave, right? For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. Jesus said, I went to the cross for the joy set before him, it says in Hebrews chapter 12. This is where joy is found in pain. Giving away anything you can find security in in order to serve and love others, even if you're the one who's in most, more need. That's the radical transformation the gospel does. Uh, Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary, he put it this way. He said, just from personal experience, he said, look, the less I spent on myself and the more I gave to others, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become. Just, just practical part of life, he said. This releasing of our death grip on our idols is so important when we talk about the mission of the church, especially the role of money it plays. It plays a huge role in the mission of the church and the mission of the gospel. Because, you know why? Because this story we just read here is not the version of Christianity that a lot of unbelievers have read and seen, right? Um, when I was back in L.A., there was a um, L.A. Times writer that I, was, I had this ongoing kind of emailing relationship with, and um, he was actually the last religion writer for the L.A. Times. They don't have one anymore. He was the last one. He was quitting, and he wrote some articles about why he was quitting, and so I was talking to him and trying to help him work through this. Um, he said uh, his last few articles, he kind of told the story of why he was walking away from Christianity and why he's, just, he's not just quitting his job. He's, I'm going to walk away from everything. And uh, he shared in his emails the different people and situations he had run into. And maybe, again, this may be very at home for you here. In the end, he, he abandoned the faith, walked away because he had seen so much of Christianity that just didn't, didn't, seem, didn't seem like what he saw in the Bible. Here's what he said. Here's how he put it to me. He said this. It was an email. He said, evangelicals don't give anywhere near 10% of their income to charity. Only a very few, often on the fringes of mainstream or evangelical Christianity, behave with their money as if they believe the gospel is actually true. 
then he told me, he said, if you, if you get outside of the Christian bubble, you find a lot of people who want to believe and perhaps even did believe, but who are disillusioned. What they read in the Gospels is not what they see in the church. He had seen it. He had seen the abuse of, of churches and the power and authority they were using and the money they were spending and on themselves. But that's not what we see in Acts 4, right? That's not the version of Christianity that is, that is to be real. They were radically giving in, in, in Acts chapter 4. Why? What moved them to release their death grip on money and all that comes with that? I mean, wouldn't the rise of persecution mean they'll be losing their jobs? Getting fined by the city, maybe? You know, those things? Shouldn't they be saving up their money, maybe stashing it away, giving nothing away just in case? It was the gospel that moved him. And it was three pieces here. I'm going to just give them to you real quick, and then we're going to be done. Three pieces or three elements about Jesus that we see in this text that actually moved them to do this. Number one, Jesus is the king. We already talked about this a little bit. They believe Jesus owned it all. <laughs> so it wasn't theirs to begin with. It says they no longer possessed anything in a sense of ownership because it, why? It was all Jesus. Everything they had, everything they were, everything they hoped to be was all Jesus. I mean, they, they got this from the Bible. Exodus 19.5, all the earth is mine, God said. Job 41.11, whatever's under the whole heaven is mine. <laughs> Psalm 50, he said, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills, that was their income, right? That was their jobs, uh, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Then pretty clearly, Haggai 2.8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. It's, it's all mine, he said, right? This, uh, I remember when our kids were little, it was a conversation we always had in our house. This is when they're little toddlers and they're, you know, mine, you know, the whole thing of toys and wrestling over those things. And finally, we just established an ongoing conversation that, look, it's not yours, it's Jesus's. It's not yours, it's God's. And, and you, I always told people, you got to be prepared when you come to our house because we say this so often that if you come into our house and you say something's mine, my kids will rebuke you. <laughs> right? It's like when they were little, they'd be like, that's not yours. You know, that's how they would say it. I don't know why I go to like New York accent when I do that, but it's not yours. It's God's, you know. And uh, I don't know if they ever talk that way, but, you know, it's a, uh, but that's what they did, right? And that's, I mean, they would, rebuke, they would rebuke me. I'd be like, can you give me my cup? It's not yours, it's God's. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right, sorry. <laughs> it was just a language you tried to build, a culture of like, look, our stuff is not ours. It's God's. Number two, he's not only the king, he's also the treasure here. Jesus is what occupied the hearts of these people. He's what occupied their heart, um, um, is, and what occupies your heart is what receives your money, right? Jesus taught this. Matthew 6, 19 through 20, don't lay it for yourself, treasures in heaven. He goes on to say, lay it for yourselves, treasures on earth. I'm sorry, <laughs> treasures in heaven. Let me read that again, because I just read that completely wrong. <laughs> Call me a heretic on that one. That was bad. All right. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break into steel. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in steel. And here it is. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You just follow, you want to know where your heart is? Follow your bank account. Follow your credit card. Right? You'll see where it's going. They believe the gospel, this text, they believe the gospel enough to know that Jesus was their greatest treasure, not their possessions or their money or even their homes. And they pry their hands of them, right? They're willing to give it away. I mean, think about it. The act of giving is a vivid reminder that it's all about God and not about us. It's saying, I'm not the point, he's the point, right? I'm not the treasure, he's the treasure. He does not exist for me, I exist for him. And the last thing they understood about the gospel in this was that Jesus was their savior, Money wasn't a pseudo-savior, okay? It wasn't a functional savior for them. It wasn't where they turned to for life 
or whatever money could give them. It wasn't what they turned to for life, for joy, significance, security, identity, or comfort. They turned to Jesus. And because he was their treasure, they didn't, need, they didn't even need a sermon on money or an exhortation to share their belongings. It's not anywhere in the text. They intuitively did it because they understood the gospel. They understood Jesus and how valuable he was. Later on in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is, gives a comment about why people gave as they did. And listen to, you hear the gospel in this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Right? That was the motivating power behind why they gave. That was the gospel that moved them to give. You see, what you give away is a reflexive response to the grace of God in your life. Grace is the action, giving is the reaction, right? This giving, this chucking of idols is risky though, right? But so was Jesus' mission to rescue us. It was so risky that he actually died. So we look at the cross long enough until our hands start to kind of let go of that white knuckle grip of the stuff that we have, right? Um, we let go of the idols, not just money here in our text, but anything it could be. It could be safety, it could be control, whatever's keeping you from following Jesus closely to know him and make him known. You need to hear Jesus today saying to us, saying to you, let it go, right? Let it go. I mentioned at the beginning the, the film Indiana Jones and the Last Crusades where uh, there's a part of that when that movie kind of ends, and sorry, spoiler alert if you haven't seen this, so I'm just letting you know. Um, Indiana, Indiana makes it through the trials, right? Makes it through the saw blades, makes it through the puzzle piece there, makes it over the bridge, you know, the leap of faith kind of thing. Gets there and he gets the Holy Grail. He's trying to bring it back to heal his dad, right, who's dying. And he gets all the way back, and right when they get back, and they, they go to, his dad gets, he gets healed with the water from there, and they go to leave the place, and what happens? Earthquake, right? Everything starts to shake. They can't leave with the grail. And as it shakes, uh, we find Elsa, who's, by the way, nothing to do with Frozen, just so you know. Um, Elsa, who is like the, the love interest of Indiana, right? She falls, and she grabs onto the edge of the little cliff there the, of the, the valley that kind of broken up, and uh, she, looks, she looks down. Indiana grabs her gloved hand, right, and he's got her. He says, I got you, and, and she looks down. She sees the grail, remember, and she reaches for it. And he's like, I'm losing the grip. I'm losing the grip, right? And, and she's like, I can almost reach it. And what happens in the story, right? The glove slips off her hand, and she perishes. And right after that, Indiana climbs up top. The ground shakes again, and what happens? He falls. He's grabbing onto the edge of the, of the, uh, of the, the, the ledge there, and he's there, and his dad's there now, right? His dad's there, Henry's there, and he, uh, he reaches down. He's got his hand, and what, is, what does Indiana do? He looks around, and he goes, I can almost reach it. And he's just fingertips away from the grail. And do you remember what his dad said? And this is the part I wanted to get to because this kind of reminds me of the story, right? The dad looked at him, and he goes, Indiana, Indiana, let it go. Let it go. Let it go. And finally, remember, he went and grabbed his hand. He pulled him up, but he had to let it go. It was so wanting, that, that treasure, that thing he wanted so badly, he had to let it go. And that's what I believe Jesus is saying to us. We've got to let it go, okay? The grip that we have, this white-knuckled death grip on the things that we possess, that whatever things that are keeping us from following Jesus closely, whatever's keeping us from making Jesus known, whatever those things are, we need to let those go. That's what we see here. And that's what the gospel transformed this community into, a, again, not possessive persons, but steward of stuff, and cause them to love one another and give to one another and pray together and seek other people who didn't know him. So as we go to communion, take the opportunity to reflect on those things. What is it, right? What is it that's keeping you? What is it you gotta let go? Um, 
There's a little cup, there's juice and bread in there. That's, we do this as a church, we take communion together. Remember the body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us, we do in remembrance of him. If you're not a follower of Jesus, don't take it, okay? If you are a follower of Jesus and you're struggling and you, and you, don't, and you, you have things you just can't let go and you really, let us talk with you, pray for you. Communion may not be for you today, okay? That's okay. It's not like it's an oblig, uh, you know, obligation that you have to fulfill every Sunday. We're not checking a box here. It's an opportunity to commune with God. Pray with him, talk to him, let things go to become this kind of church and people that God has formed here for the sake of those who don't know him. So I'm gonna pray, give you some time of solitude and quiet here, and then we'll conclude our service with a song. Father.